month of official sheltering in place, and I'm so grateful for the time that I've been able to spend with you all via social media, streaming, and Zoom. It's truly a gift to be able to connect during such a turbulent time as this. It's also exactly a year since I first had the privilege of preaching at Mission Hills about gender, pronouns, and LGBTQ equality, so it's fun for me to have the opportunity to be speaking again a year later. We always opened with the question, and this one comes from my favorite lectionary commentary, Feasting on the Word. The question for this week is, when did God, when did Jesus become more than just a name to you? When did God, when did Jesus become more than just a name to you? More can be defined a number of different ways, but I invite you to explore that question over the next 15 minutes or so. Our gospel text comes from John 20, verses 19 through 31, reading out of the New Revised Standard Version. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father had sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven then. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails, my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that through believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I can't say that I've found the right answer to the question, how do you follow up Easter any more than I did last year? But I can speak for myself at the very least that my understanding of the Easter miracle has drastically changed over this past year. It is no longer simply a Sunday to live up to this impossible standard of perfection as the church is draped in white cloths to cover up 
any blemish from the past year. It is no longer a single act done by Jesus as we applaud him from the sideline. It is no longer an emphasis on merely winning. If anything, it's become a symbol of more resistance, more mess, more human than inconceivable divinity. We affirm that Easter is more than a day. There's something bigger than just the mess outside our door, even though we may feel, how can there possibly be more? And resurrection is confirmation and security in this something greater. Easter means living into resistance in our lives, demanding that social change occur as we welcome heaven on earth in the space that we exist in just as we are. If Jesus' political statements and acts teach us anything about solidarity, a ministry of presence, overthrowing oppressive systems, it's that it is far from a one-day rally cry. It was a lifetime of loving the least of these. When I read the text for this week's sermon, my immediate response to the gospel passage in my head was, Yas, doubting Thomas. Now, I highly doubt that he's ever elicited that kind of response before. But honestly, Thomas is someone that I've connected with. And because of his sheer presence in the gospel, I think it creates space for doubt to be present in our spiritual lives. The only sermons I've heard on Thomas have chastised him for not being as willing to follow quickly like the other disciples. Even though they received the actual physical Christ in the same way. If anything, I think that the fact that he slowed down, asked Jesus for proof, only affirms his willingness to be all in. Adults teach children that having a bit of doubt is healthy. Checking to make sure a board will hold your weight rather than blindly running across and potentially falling. Some may call that common sense. I'd like to say it's having a healthy understanding of doubt. Can it quickly become unfound fear? Sure. But the point is that it's healthy to question ourselves and our surroundings. To check in and ask, is this still working for me? However, when it comes to religion, many folks face consequence for maintaining some doubt of their beliefs. If you couldn't reconcile your differences to fit into the prescribed doctrine, value set, and lifestyle, then could you really call yourself a Christian? My personal point of deconstruction, reconstruction, and doubt begin with the simple question of what are we being saved from? For any of you familiar with atonement theology, that's the forming of beliefs around what actually happens when Christ literally or figuratively dies a death and is resurrected and why it was necessary. Depending on how you interpret the person himself and what his work in his life, death and resurrection actually meant, you could end up with a theory of Christus Victor, substitution, satisfaction, moral influence, or other. Atonement can be defined as the reparations or expiation for sin. 
especially in the evangelical world, atonement is the central tenet to the Christian faith. The reason for atonement, what actually happened when Jesus lived and died, why death was a necessary component, and what our mission and call is in light of forgiveness is all wrapped up in these series. And depending on which one you end up with, it has a very different effect on the historical and contemporary role of Jesus in the faith. I'm sure at least one of you is familiar with the feeling of once you start asking the question, there's hardly any turning back. Once you've seen, you can't go back to sleep. But there's this new world of possibility, of truth, of questioning before us. This quote comes from a commentary on the passage of Thomas and explains, Thomas did not sacrifice his questioning mind for the sake of going along with the crowd. His agnosticism is an openness to experience, not a closed mind. He willingly opens to resurrection when he encounters the living Christ. Thomas exemplifies the faith of the scientist, questioning and yet following the evidence wherever it leads. In this time of war against science, promulgated by conservative Christians, we need to connect the resurrection's affirmation of embodiment with the scientific adventure. When it comes to Easter, the celebration of life of purpose, of continuing the story. There's a number of answers that come streaming into the question of what next. Reality is though that any answer that may come will probably be skewed by reality. I found that most answers that come discuss what we do rather than settling into who we are, only continuing the cycle that our identities are based on what we produce. And yet that production is still part of our journeys. I've also found that how we answer that question is a really good litmus test for privilege. If you have the ability to not question the beliefs that have been prepackaged, if you have the ability to easily give up your current life structure, if you can answer that question in a way that would only seemingly affect you, one might have some privilege. So where do we go? What's the journey that brings us from potentially getting stuck to being moved to action? Whether that is a single step, settling into who we are, giving grace, or changing the systems. All of this brings us to the urgency of the gospel. Well, if we're saved just by believing in God, what does it matter how we spend our time and lives anyway? If nothing has changed, why waste our energy attempting to do something that will never happen? If actions come from salvation rather than for salvation, and stewardship of our lands, people, the gospel, etc., and discipleship are the highest, quote-unquote, ships on the list, with the greatest two commandments being infused in each, how might we change our view of our own actions towards our environment, whether complicitly or actively involved?
shalom, and agape. Shalom is meant for all people. And whether or not the privileged groups acknowledges the oppression that marginalized and exploited groups are facing, it exists and therefore we are not all free. That's the thing with privilege, is that if you have it, you have the ability to turn a blind eye and remain complicit, even if you aren't, quote-unquote, individually being racist, sexist, homophobic, etc. Being complicit doesn't cut it for shalom. Shalom comes only to the inclusive, embracing community that excludes none. Agape translated to God's unconditional love, sacrificial love, willful and whole, gives us a starting point for shalom. If we're going to come away with any lesson from the space that we've been pushed into, whether in Eastertide, in quarantine, wherever else you may find yourself, I'd place my bet on our need to truly lean into what it means to be human what it means to open ourselves up to something greater than ourselves, to doubt our ability to do it on our own so that we can welcome in community, agape, and shalom. We've always lived in the liminal space between what's come before and what's coming next. One could argue that resurrection, the apocalypse, the revelation are all spaces that we inhabit and make use of even in our daily life. Spaces of transition in my life are usually when I doubt myself and God the most, how things are gonna come together. And yet these spaces of transition have often been when I've experienced the most growth. Back in my days as a challenge course facilitator, we'd always give a talk before allowing participants up onto the obstacles that hung 30 feet up in the air. Outside of general safety precautions and logistical steps, we'd introduce them to this concept of the three zones. The comfort zone, the learning zone, and the panic zone. Comfort zone is pretty self-explanatory, but imagine with me your favorite peaceful spot. Nothing is challenging you, you feel safe, you feel content. The panic zone could be described as the opposite. Survival mode is taking over, you're past your limit. It's the most stressful and panic-producing situation you could imagine. Both of those zones have ranges, but somewhere in the middle is a sweet spot called the learning zone. The space where you're challenged to learn something new about yourself, to work towards a complicated but still attainable goal, to process through hard things. Much of one's time spent in counseling would hopefully be spent in the learning zone, although it's absolutely possible to reach that panic zone, right? What might be your learning zone when it comes to faith? Is it enough to give yourself permission to doubt your beliefs, even if you think you might come to the same conclusion? Is it enough to come to the conclusion that you can't do this process on your own? Is it enough to say that it's okay to doubt everything all at once? I fully believe that in the presence of God's unconditional love, or agape, there is plenty of space, no matter how you come at the table. 
I think most folks would affirm a great amount of doubt with how the politics around COVID-19 are being handled as the current situation continues to unfold. I would assume that to many, it doesn't make sense to withhold funding and blame the World Health Organization for one's own mishandling of the national emergency that the pandemic has rendered us in. Apparently, some would disagree. I tried to make it through this whole thing without making too much of a statement, but to no avail. One look at the data and it becomes blatantly obvious that our neighbors, our own, are not treated equally in the eyes of capitalism and never have been. And I can only imagine that God weeps with us, still fights for us, still prods us to keep on. Because the beating heart of the gospel is what the world needs right now. And this is a chance to live out that teaching. Now is the time to act out of love and mercy rather than vanity and pride. Now is the time for saying, I don't know, rather than watch what I can do. Trusting that some unseen spirit moves into that liminal space with us when we do. So how is God more than just a name to you now? in this moment, at this time in your life. In the midst of crisis, of separation, of newness, of resurrection, how can, will, would, is God more than just a name to you? How might that move us towards shalom and agape, even in something as compassionate as social distancing?